Abraham may be the father of all those who believe, but his faith was far from perfect. In fact, he had a trust problem that led him to repeatedly tell a half-truth for his own protection. Genesis 20 records one of those instances. The text says this, From there, uh, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. You you know, between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. It's half-sister, half-truth. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We don't have significant reason to think that Abimelech, king of Gerar, was someone who feared or followed God. Abraham certainly didn't think so. He says later, like, well, I knew nobody feared God in this place. This is why I had to take matters into my own hands. Yet Abimelech did have a sense of right and wrong, and he sought to live by it, and he judged himself by it. God himself testified to Abimelech that he had acted in the integrity of his heart. The New International Version, the NIV, translates this phrase that he had acted with a clear conscience. He had acted with a clear conscience conscience. So an unbeliever, one who really had no faith in God, did not follow God, this unbelieving king had a conscience and acted with a clear conscience, acting according to what he thought was right or wrong. This shouldn't surprise us that, no, of course, well, of course, Abraham needs to have a conscience. He's a follower of God, but Abimelech shouldn't have a conscience because he's not a follower of God. Perhaps that's where we think, but uh, we really can only think that if we are not a student of Scripture, because there's another passage, if we've read through the New Testament letter to the Romans, that sheds some light back on passages like Genesis 20, among many others. Paul writes, Kind of jumping right into the middle of, of his argument, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, really God says this through Paul, for when the Gentiles, kind of unbelievers, Israelites, people like Abimelech, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Why 
did it matter to Abimelech that Abraham, that Sarah was not Abraham's wife? Because even Abimelech knew before the law had been given, right? This is before Moses gives God's law. There's, there's not a commandment chiseled into stone for him to break. So without the law, before the law, nevertheless, Abimelech knew what the law would say and knew that it would be, that it was right to marry this man's sister, take her into his harem. That's a whole other discussion. But wrong if they had been married. Even without the law, he acted according to the law because God had put it on his heart, even as an unbeliever. We are in a series, a short series about the conscience. I have two goals, two prayers for us as we go through this series together. I spent all of last week walking through those, just as a reminder, individually. Why talk about the conscience? Because I want you, individually, well, me too, but I want you to enjoy the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience. It's not automatic. Many don't. You can, and I want you to enjoy that personally and individually. And our goal corporately, as in as a body, as a church, I want us to glorify God by pursuing unity in our body, and a proper understanding of the conscience is absolutely essential for us to do that. If you were not here last week, a little bit of a long one, please listen to last week's sermon, walking through both that individual blessedness a little bit, but really the glory of God by pursuing unity in our body from Romans chapter 15, which is a passage that follows one of Paul's significant discussions on the conscience. These are the goals uh, last week, this week, and probably the next two weeks as well. I gave three, I gave homework last week, don't normally do that, uh, three big questions to ask, as, to ask and hopefully answer as we go through this series. Three questions are really the three questions that'll be uh, this sermon and then the next two sermons as well. Questions like, what is the conscience? How should I interact with my conscience? It's kind of that, that individual blessedness sort of flows out of that. And then the unity question for the glory of God, how should I relate, misspelling, that's against my conscience, it's my fault, I did it wrong anyway, how should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? I hope that you were able to spend some time thinking through this this week, continue to think through it. This morning, I want to spend time answering this first question, this first question what is the conscience? mentioned several times, book that's been very, very helpful for me, uh, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Not the only book that I've read on conscience, but definitely my favorite. I'm going to lean on a lot of the ways that they said, trying to think, well, maybe I'd rearrange everything, but uh, normally I don't steal other people's outlines. Uh, today, mostly my outline is, is their outline. I want to give them credit for that. It's valuable, but not all, I'm not just reading the book to you. They give a definition. What is the conscience? This will set the stage for us. They say this. I think this is good. The conscience is your consciousness or awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. The conscience is your, we'll say, awareness, your sense, your 
consciousness is the word that they use. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Then they try to explain that. That's aspects of teasing pieces of that out I want to do today. When we think about the conscience, it is a, a distinct aspect of what it means to be human. This is one of the first things that they mentioned, that conscience is a human capacity. When I say capacity uh, because not all humans are able to function according to a conscience for a variety of reasons, right? Like a baby does not have the same functioning of a conscience as an adult does. They have the capacity, though, because they're human. Animals do not have the capacity of conscience. They, they live and respond more based on instinct or even learned behavior. He has a great statement about, you know, as much as my dog tucking her tail and folding her ears may look guilty, she doesn't feel guilty. And then he says, my cat also doesn't have a conscience, but we already knew that. You know, just love that. Uh, conscience is not necessarily like the only difference between animals and humans, but like plants and minerals and animals and stars do not have a conscience. Humanity has a conscience. But where did it start? Right? Where did it come from? Where do we get our conscience? And the answer to that is it was given to humanity by God at creation. This is, this is part of a human nature to have this personal sense of what is right or wrong, an awareness of what you believe is right or wrong. As early as Genesis 1, let's Genesis 1, 26 to 27. I'm going to throw a handful of texts out to you today. It says this, hopefully a familiar passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So all of humanity, male and female, are made in the image of God. And that marks us out as distinct from the rest of creation. He did not say that about anything else. There is a a distinction and an elevated status of humanity above all of creation. And the center of that, where that flows out of, is that humanity, male and female, made in the image of God. We see that start to play out as to to those differences in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Where did he put the... The dogs, and what did he give them to do? Where did he put the bears and give them to do? Where did he put the whales and give them to do? They didn't have a, an assigned task like humanity did. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So notice something that flows from being made in God's image. Responsibility. I'm putting you here for a purpose, to work and to keep the garden. An obligation and restrictions. You may, this is right, you shall not, this is wrong. So we see a sense of right and wrong in God's communication with human beings that we do not see in his communication, because there isn't communication, to animals. As humans, we were created to learn and know and choose between right and wrong. To learn right and wrong, to know right and wrong, and to choose between right and wrong. To choose between what should and should not be done, and to know that there's a difference between those two things. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so in the the book, these authors 
phrase it this way. They say, conscience reflects the moral aspect of God's image. Moral, morality. There's a, there's a, there are lines between that and ethics, but there's a lot of overlap between those type of things. We're talking about distinctions between right and wrong. It's hard to come up with an all-encompassing, exhaustive definition of what it means that humanity has been made in the image of God. Different authors will have different lists, aspects of, of relationship. Uh, I certainly think that's a part of what that is, right? Male and female together make up the image of God, God who is one God in three persons existing in eternal love and relationships. So that's a piece of it. That's not all of it. But morality has to be part of it as well, a sense of what right is right and wrong, because God knows the difference. Can't say that God is an amoral being, certainly not an immoral being. So God has morality, so you must be a moral creature able to make moral judgments if you're made in the image of God, which we see throughout Scripture. Genesis 2.25 talks about this moral aspect of God's image as well. Following their marriage before God, the text says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had clean and clear consciences. They were not guilty. They didn't feel guilty. They had no shame from their guilt. They had nothing to hide from each other or from God. Right? Like a, a full exposure. And bodily, they were evidencing what was true in their souls. Glad to be with each other. Glad to be with God. Nothing to hide. No reason. What a delight. Genesis 3 it changes. Following their sinful disobedience, a significant change takes place. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was not the first time he had done that. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now they were afraid to be seen. They were afraid to be seen by each other. They were afraid to be seen by God. They were afraid because they were guilty. They knew that they were guilty. And with their, their guilt brought with it a sense of shame and a desire to hide. This was the response of their guilty consciences. Once again, recognize the difference between humans and animals in this respect. Animals have no shame at their nakedness or about anything else right? They wear no covering. They clean themselves in front of everybody, right? Never, never been like, oh, I didn't know you were coming over. Let me go bat my fur. Let me just give a bath right here. We used to have a cat, you know, just like, wow, thank you so much for doing that right in front of me. Right? Animals don't have a sense of that. There's no, there's no shame. There's no difficulty. And then, you know, there's that human capacity. And then little children are often described as not really knowing the difference between right and wrong, and then they grow into that and have an awareness of like, oh, you know, I need a covering. God admitted they needed a covering. God admitted that they couldn't cover themselves. God provided a covering for that gospel. Covering through death starts pointing forward to those type of things. But it's important to recognize that Adam and Eve did not gain a conscience at the fall. They didn't go from conscienceless to guilty conscience. 
Because the conscience doesn't just tell you what is wrong, it also tells you what is right. It doesn't just accuse, as we'll see, it also excuses. The conscience is what says you are clean, you are innocent, you were right. The same conscience that sometimes says you are guilty, you are sinful, you are wrong. They had their consciences upon their creation. And on the other end of time and eternity, we can likewise recognize that as humans, our consciences will not be lost at our glorification. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are not all that you will be. You will be made new, renewed after you're being renewed. You will be perfectly renewed after the image of your creator, right? All that can be seen in in reflecting the image of God will be reflected in all of his people as it is reflected in his son, Jesus Christ. We will have a perfectly clean and forever clear conscience. That will be the state of individual eternal blessedness, eternal, forever. To be human is to have a conscience. And do you know what that means? It means that Jesus has a conscience. Had and has. Jesus has always lived with that perfect blessedness of a clean and clear conscience, knowing before God that what he's done is right. We'll get to that a little bit later. Jesus has a conscience. He's like us in every way except without sin. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Conscience feels independent. I don't know, as you thought about the conscience this week, tried to throw a definition together, chatted with each other, Conscience is like, well, it's me, but then it's like, but it's, but it's not me. Did you think about that? The conscience has been, refi- has been uh, referred to as an inner voice. Not audible, but there. Speaks in concrete sentences, very concrete accusation. Uh, and the, I mentioned that this book, and then there's a children's book on the subject as well, and Andy Nacelli gives this definition Uh, In the children's book, my conscience is that little voice in my head that tells me whether something is right or wrong. Tells me. I'm confident that you know the voice I'm talking about. But have you ever wondered, whose voice is that? Who is it? It's in my head, my heart, my gut, telling me that I'm right or telling me that I'm wrong. Is it your voice? No? No? It speaks to you about you. It's definitely internal, but it feels independent. It feels like somebody else. Your conscience gives often unasked for moral judgments of you like a smug sibling. You're wrong. You broke the rules, and I'm going to tell. Not that I had any smug siblings or anything like that. Just two older sisters and... I was often wrong. I did break the rules, so we deserve to be told on. But like, no, don't tell. Don't go tell. I'll do. I'll clean your room for. I'll do your chores. If you don't tell, and I'll, let me make up for it. How many times did just different things, situations from my past to my childhood and beyond of just kind of like, oh, you're wrong. Well, let me make up for it. Okay, make up for it. By the way, you're still wrong. What a traitor. I think it's interesting that that I'm going to tell, maybe you haven't thought of it in that way, but I really think that you know what I'm talking about, raises a really interesting question. Tell who? 
And I think Romans 2 points us to the fact that the conscience is pointing us to a knowledge of God. There's somebody who's going to find out that I don't want to find out. Because it's not somebody below me, and it's not somebody on my level, somebody that I answer to. And as much as you try to suppress that, Romans 1 says all of humanity has suppressed that, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, rejected and denied the fact that there is a God. Romans 2 tells us, and then the conscience slips in, it's like you can, you can define your atheism as much as you want, but somebody's going to know what you just did. Oh. I like that kind of... Uh, maybe not very uh, uh, kind, but kind of funny definition of, of atheism, right? There's no God and I hate him. Right? It's just kind of like, maybe it's, we don't, want th- we don't want there to be a God because we know that we're guilty. And knowing that we're guilty is from our conscience. The conscience will also side with you against other people when they do wrong. Sometimes it's the sibling that's going to mom and dad against you. Other times it's the friend that comes, did you see what they just, I did, they were wrong. I know they were wrong, that guy over there. Moral judgments against other people. It isn't just you, because it seems to back you up, take your side. I think that's one of the clearest proofs that we have a conscience, is that we, humanity, as a whole, we unavoidably engage in vigorous moral judgment of others make excuses for ourselves, but as soon as we see wrong done, we're like, that's wrong. Right? That's a judgment because you know, oh, there's no right or wrong, right? Just everything's relative, it's personal, it's societal, and then something happens against you and it's just like, that was not right. They deserve punishment for that. It's like, I thought that, I thought that's not how the world worked. Right? People are inconsistent with that. Romans 2 says it's because of their conscience. The conscience is with you, but it isn't exactly you. So what is it? Is it a cricket that follows you around? No, it's not. I don't have a cricket. Well, the cricket that follows you around is, you know, makes the sound, and you can never find it in the dark. It's not a cricket. Is it two voices? An angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other. This is what's right. No, this is, what's, this is what you should do. This will be a lot better. No. Uh, There's nothing in Scripture that would say that we each have our own personal shoulder angel and shoulder demon telling us what to do. That's not what it is. But more seriously, is it God's voice? Is your conscience the same thing as God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to you? That answer is also no. Although it may be harder to understand. We're going to see that your conscience is not perfect. By not perfect, I mean not always right. Your conscience, this is a little bit more next week, it it needs to constantly be trained and corrected. And these things cannot be said about God. That which God says is not always right, that which God says is not perfect, that which God says needs to be adjusted and corrected, we can't say that about God. The Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes like that. So your conscience is not the same as the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't use the conscience. He does. But it's not the same as the Holy Spirit. And as we saw earlier, even unbelievers who are not filled by or led by 
the Holy Spirit, who remain dead in their sins, still have the voice of conscience speaking to them. The conscience is not God, the Holy Spirit residing in you. It's not the same as the voice of God. I think that's helpful because the more that we think it is God, the less we're going to interact with it properly. How do I interact with my conscience? Changes when we recognize the fact that our conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Conscience, we talked about definitions this week, tried to uh, get the girls to think through a few things um, along with me, and at times your conscience may seem unpleasant and undesirable and annoying, irritating. That was one of the definitions that came up. It's this obnoxious, it's this annoying voice. No, don't raise your hand. I'll just put myself on display. More than once I've wished I did not have my conscience bugging me all the time. Most inconvenient reminders, the worst times. So we might think it's not something that we want, but in reality, conscience is a priceless gift from God. Your conscience from God for your good and therefore for his glory. Now, let's not despise the gifts that God has given to us. I don't like it when I... I love cooking. I love cooking on cast iron skillets. I don't like cooking on cast iron skillets when the skillet's been on the stove too long, and when you go to touch the pan, and that heat transfers all the way through, and it burns my hand. I don't like that. I don't like it when turn on the hot water to try to clean the dishes ends up too hot. I don't like it when I need to touch snow or ice scrape off my window the two or three times a year that we have ice and I forgot my gloves and I don't want to go into the house. Sudden cold is really uncomfortable. But are we really going to say that our sense of touch warning us of danger and helping us to avoid pain, are we going to say that that's a bad thing? Is frostbite better or third degree burns? No, our sense of touch, ah, it's a gift from God for our good. The conscience is our moral sense of touch, hot, cold, right, wrong. It's a gift from God for our good, for his glory. Meant to lead us to the blessedness, not of blankness, but of a convinced knowledge of cleanness and clearness. The burden that comes down on, there's a reason for that burden of guilt and there's a way for that burden to be lifted. The conscience is a tool used by the Holy Spirit to drive us to Christ. It's a gift from God for us. To understand the conscience, we need to recognize, they put it this way, that conscience wants to be an on-off switch, not a dimmer. We moved into our home last year. We started making it our own. I changed several lights and their light switches to allow us to adjust them using a dimmer switch. I don't know if you have lights like that. Every light in this room is on a dimmer switch. I always want to just adjust it a little bit. The light could be perfectly set, and I'm going to probably lower it, and then raise it back up again just to make it my own. Didn't make any change really, but love just operating those dimmers. Sometimes you want a lot of light. 
Other times, you only want a little light. It's nice to be able to find that perfect balance. Your conscience does not function like that. Your conscience wants on or off. Your conscience says right or wrong, black or white, innocent or guilty, excused or accused. The conscience, they say, doesn't do grayscale very well. It lacks any sense of nuance. It doesn't understand differences of opinions. It doesn't understand varying perspectives. You might be like, well, good, because everything is either black or white, right or wrong, on or off. So conscience is good because everything is either right or wrong, always, all the time. And in a sense, you're right. Something either is a sin or isn't a sin. You have a sense of what's right or wrong. Uh, Are you right? Is your conscience right? So, I like garden food, and I like not having to work a garden. Because there's always something else to do. My neighbor next door to me has a huge garden. You can actually see it from here, right there. I can see his corn. So, I like corn. He has corn, he's hungry, grabbed an ear of corn from his garden. What would you call that? Stealing. Stealing right or wrong? Stealing's wrong. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So if somebody were to take food grown in someone else's garden or field, that's theft and it's wrong? Right? Like, consciences, come on. Wow. Well, we've got a problem then because Jesus allowed his followers to take wheat from the field of somebody else. Is, was, were they stealing? Matter of fact, the law commands it to be able to happen. Uh-oh. On, off, black, white, right, wrong. Like, hmm, I think that we need to adjust that a little bit. I can be convinced that it's okay for me to eat his corn. He may not be convinced of that. So we have different ideas in the United States of America about what personal property is and what boundary lines and those type of things. Where somebody in a different culture, a a more community-based culture, a warmer culture, I believe a Ugandan culture would probably have questions would be like, what do you mean my garden? Isn't it? Like, how do you own food? What did you really do to produce that? Is that my garden or is that our garden? Or or actually, is it God's garden? So there's an interesting, wow. And so if you take that and just be like, oh, great, I'm going to go and just take all of his corn. Well, no, that's theft. (laughs) That's theft here. That's theft in you, God. I'm going to go sell that corn on the side of the street. Thank you, God, for the corn. no. That doesn't work that way, right? But different people are going to say different aspects of what's right or wrong. You'd be like, I'm convinced that that's theft. I'm going to live by that. Be like, well, that's a good thing. You should, but you should also consider the fact that you're coming at it from a perspective, not the perspective. And I don't get to to inflict that on my neighbor. That's, That's two weeks from now. How do we interact with consciences that disagree? Don't start plucking food from the garden and telling that Jesus and your pastor said that you could. 
okay? Follow the rest of the series. But it's just an object of like what there is right, there is wrong. You know what you think is right, what you think is wrong. The question that we have to ask is, are you right about what you think is right or wrong? Your conscience isn't the voice of God. Is it correct? Those are the kind of questions that we need to ask. And they get to that in this next, this next aspect of where they go next, and this is where it gets incredibly helpful, that your conscience is what I call personal. And by that, I mean that your conscience, your conscience is unique to you, and your conscience is intended only for you. Your conscience has a list that it checks actions and decisions by. It evaluates things in the past, evaluates things right now, evaluates things that you're thinking about in the future, and it evaluates what everybody else has done, is doing, and will do. It checks all of these different things to tell you whether you think those things are right or wrong. And the frustrating thing is that you can't just read that list. What is the stuff that I... Sometimes you only find out after you violate it. And your conscience is like, oh, I checked the list. That one was wrong. Why didn't you tell me beforehand? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And on that list is what you think is right and wrong. Sometimes you only find out by your conscience alarm system going off and convicting you, accusing you. The other side of that is that everyone's conscience, everyone's list is different. Even spouses Right? Leanne and I agree on a lot of stuff. Our lists, our consciences are not identical. Now, if they were massively incompatible, we would have a problem. They are not identical. And your conscience is identical with no one else's. You and someone else may be fairly similar, and then there's all sorts of stuff we could talk about with culture and other things, about cultures have similar aspects of consciences, but not identical, and the further apart those cultures are, the more differences they're going to see, like that garden illustration, very different culture and and the, the ways that those things flow. You and someone else may be fairly similar, very different when it comes to your consciences. They won't be the same. They don't need to be. And we can still reach our ultimate corporate goal of glorifying God by pursuing unity in our body, even with consciences that disagree. I think I had said this now in two different sermons back in May and last week. As a matter of fact, disagreeing consciences are one of the key testing grounds for unity in the church. If we all agree, then it's not work to be unified. We test unity upon what happens when there's disagreement. And the disagreement so often flows out of consciences that are calibrated different ways for a variety of different reasons. I mentioned last week there are three key passages in the Bible that teach us about conscience. Romans 14 into chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 8, In 1 Corinthians 10, not the only passages, but the three key New Testament and Old Testament, the three key Bible passages that teach us about consciences, especially interacting and disagreeing inside of the church. And in each of these passages, Paul addresses that the believers in those churches both faced the same difficulty. Corinthian believers and Roman believers, they had the same conscience problem regarding what food they could eat. 
In a nutshell, here's what this difficulty was. In ancient cities, meat was often offered as a sacrifice to whatever local god or idol occupied that city, and then that, uh, that meat, sanctified by its offering to that god, was then sold in the meat market. And some early Christians were convinced they knew that it was wrong to eat that meat because they would be engaging in idolatry. Other Christians were convinced that it was right for them to eat whatever meat they wanted because they were giving gratitude to the one true and living God from whom all things have come. They, this group, honored the Lord by refusing to engage in idolatry, great, by eating meat. Hmm. These said, we want to honor God by not engaging in idolatry, by eating whatever meat we want to the glory of God. Okay? The, their consciences could not have been more different on this issue, and it created a unity problem. Lobbing accusations and refusing to interact with each other in a way that pursued unity for the glory of God. That's why Paul addresses it to both of these churches. Issues are a little bit different, but very, very similar. All people, even believers, excuse me, all people, even unbelievers, have consciences. And all people, even believers, have different consciences. All people, even unbelievers, have consciences. And all people, even believers, have different consciences. There's an illustration they use in this book that's from another author, um, an article, um, it's important in our culture to cite sources and not plagiarize. Did you know that that's not something that has concerned most authors, writers, and speakers across history? Is it, I started off because of my conscience and our culture and your conscience is saying, by the way, quoting this book, I've got quotes because it's from here, not stealing ideas. And other people in other times would say, what does stealing ideas mean? You can read through early church fathers and histories and they are just ripping quotes left and right and it wasn't wrong. But it'd be wrong for us. Right? Scandals in churches of pastors that have stolen sermons from other people. You could ask the questions like, well, whose truth is it? Was it that pastor's truth? Is it my truth or was it God's truth? Can I steal God's truth? Right? I'm not saying chuck uh, intellectual integrity in writing. Oh, the Bible's okay with it. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, here's a hint from that last week. We need to follow our consciences. But there are differences. So he, he uh, uses this illustration. It might not work on the screen. I'm going to try anyway. Let's talk about Anne and Bill. Not you, Anne. Spelled differently. This is Anne's conscience. Can you see that Okay. This is just a straight rip from this book. If you read this book, you're like, boy, where did you get that illustration from? They even call her Anne. I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm using their illustration. Anne's conscience says, has these rules, A, B, C, D, E, and F, things that are right and things that are wrong. Okay, good. And then there's Bill. Bill has a few other lists. Uh, actually, Bill is supposed to have C, D, E, and F on there as well, and G, H-I-J-K-L-M-N and O. He's got a handful more rules, things that are right, things that are wrong, that guide him, things that he's convinced in his conscience, his awareness of what he thinks 
is right and what he thinks is wrong. And then Bill and Ann are part of the same church, and we have a little bit of a problem. They agree on issues C, D, E, and F. They both think that those things are either right or wrong. Now, Bill thinks, Bill's got a whole bunch of stuff that he thinks are right or wrong, that Ann, that's not on her list at all. And Ann has item A and item B that she thinks is important. She's convinced these things are matters of right or wrong that Bill doesn't. No problem. We have these differences, and then what? Right? This is the reality of our body, and we have 72 voting members, however many of us are here, different ages. If we were to try to start figuring out, even if we could identify all of our lists, like what a mess that would be. We have a lot of things that are overlapping, a lot of things that aren't. Groups of us that are convinced that something is a matter of right and wrong, and other groups of us that just aren't. It doesn't matter to us. And so we could just try to argue about all those things and overlay them and just come with some kind of community conscience idea. That's not what Paul says about unity, by the way. But we do have these differences and we have to come to grips with them. But there's another point that we really need to come to grips with as well. Maybe one of the most important things that we all need to know on a personal level, and that's that no one's conscience perfectly matches God's will, God's moral will. We've talked about wills of God before. Like that which is ordained, that which from eternity past is designated will happen, God's plan. Scripture talks about his will in that way. That's not what I'm talking about here. There's also his moral will, that which is right and that which is wrong. It's very clear to God, even if it's not clear to us. Very clear to God. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. See, this is why it's important for us to recognize that conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing. And none of us are perfectly right, and neither are Anne or Bill. So now we have another triangle that we're calling God's moral will. Turns out Anne and Bill are both actually right before God, because God cares about issues C, D, E, and F. Bill was right about G, but it wasn't on Anne's list, so Anne's wrong about that. Anne had item A. Bill didn't. Anne was right about that. God did care about that thing. That was a matter of right and wrong. And Bill's got a whole bunch of stuff on the bottom that neither Anne nor God cares about. And then what about the top of that? Item P, whatever that is, is a matter of right and wrong before God, and neither Anne nor Bill had it on their list. Read how they discuss this. It was helpful. As we come to understand God's revealed will more and more. We will have opportunities to add rules to our conscience that God's word clearly teaches and weed out rules that God's word treats as optional. This will take a lifetime, but we have the spirit of God, the word of God, and the church of God to help us. How can you discern between your conscience and the Holy Spirit? You can't know infallibly. But you can know when it is not the Holy, Scripture, the Holy Spirit. If the message contradicts Scripture, then it is not from the Holy Spirit, but from your wrongly calibrated conscience. But when the message is consistent with Scripture, the Holy Spirit is likely working through your conscience. So easy to think like, yes, unity. I 
as soon as everybody agrees with me. Everybody would just get on board. We'll all be fine. That's not just a pastor saying that. We all want that. I want that in my home. If everybody would just recognize the things that are really important, and then I don't have to worry about the things that I don't think are important, then Leanne does. You know what I'm talking about. And parents and children, there's all sorts of different ways. And families, all this interaction. So, well, God's will, but he hasn't. He's given us sufficient commands and principles. He hasn't given us specific applications for every culture across time. We have everything that we need. We don't have everything that we want. So apparently, we don't need what we want. And we're supposed to struggle through differing consciences and being confronted with the fact that we fall short of what God's revealed standard is. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. And here's where I want to end. You, I, you are guilty. Mention that goal of I want you to live, I want to live with the blessedness of of enjoying life with a clean and clear conscience. And you don't naturally have that. Because you are guilty. Even if your conscience is clear, doesn't mean that it's clean. Because you are guilty, means you're guilty of violating not my standards, first and foremost. You're guilty of violating God's will and God's standard, and where that becomes really obvious, and you know you're guilty because you are also guilty of violating your own standards. Not only do you not live according to God's sense of what you know, if his conscience, as it were, not only do you not live by that, you don't live by your own conscience. You are as guilty, you are more guilty than you think you are. Because some of the things that you think that you're guilty before God of, he doesn't care about. And a whole lot of stuff that you don't care about, he says you're guilty of. And you started off that way. All have sinned, born sinners falling short of the glory and perfection of God. And our conscience echoes that. The telltale heart beating of your guilt every day of your life can be numbed, it can be ignored, it can be damaged. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But then it just pops up and reminds you, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. You're far worse than you think you are. But then all of that points us to another reality. Who else has a conscience? Jesus. And what about him? Only one human has ever had a conscience that perfectly matched God's will. Only one human has ever lived perfectly according to their own conscience. And that one human is our Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness was absolutely spotless according to his own conscience. He said in John chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, my heavenly father. Really? Any of you want to say that? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, what, it's 1158, been up for several hours. I'm not going to say that about today. 
I'm not willing to say that about this sermon. Jesus can say that about his entire life. I always do what is pleasing to my father. His conscience sang with no guilt and no shame. Search me and know me, you will not find anything Jesus alone could say. His righteousness was verified by a human judge, having been judged by Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate comes out and says, John 18, 38, I find no guilt in him. Best sentence he ever said. Truest verdict he ever rendered. If only he had the backbone to have lived by it, but in God's will, he didn't, and we have salvation because of it, so... His disciples followed him knowing that it was his sinlessness that provided their salvation so they could preach the fact that he knew no sin and they lived with him for three years. His righteousness was acceptable to his holy heavenly father as well. A righteousness of a life leading up to his ministry and then flowing from it. Mark chapter 1 verse 11, at his baptism a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Can God be pleased with sin? No. Was God pleased with Jesus? Yes. Why? Because Jesus was righteous. And faith in Jesus Trust in him, the fact that he is God made man. He was sinless. And his death on the cross is a sacrifice that God accepts, that he rose from the dead. Faith in Jesus is the only way to have your conscience cleaned before God. You can't make up for it, you can't ignore it, you can't numb it, but the guilt can actually be addressed, the guilt can actually be taken away. The debt can be paid by someone else and you can be freed from your guilty conscience. And the first step toward that is not trying better, but coming to God, admitting your guilt and trusting in Jesus. Your sins are like scarlet, though your hands are that stained. You can be be washed as white as snow. That's, That's that eternal now, temporal, and forever eternal blessedness of living with a clear or clean conscience before God. You are guilty. Jesus is righteous. He offers you that. Will you trust in him? Only nothing else matters to that extent. I know that you feel guilty about some things. I know that you are guilty about more things. So am I. I know that Jesus is perfect and he offers that to you. Trust in him. Turn from your sin to your only savior. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, but Jesus is that name. And the more we think about our consciences, the more we can become aware or convicted of our guilt. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Leaning on your conscience, using your conscience to lead you to Christ. So trust in Christ. Don't waste your conscience. Father, thank you for our consciences. Don't always say that because we're foolish and sinful. I pray that these these thoughts uh, be helpful. Um, Especially would you remind us of the guilt of our sin allowing our consciences to do that work, 
and pointing us to Jesus. We may have forgiveness and an eternally clean conscience through faith in his name. May your spirit do that work among us, I pray. Amen.